0: Hi, it's Fraser here. Before we get into this week's Spiked podcast, I'd like to just say an enormous thank you to everyone who donates to Spiked. It's thanks to your generous support that Spiked has managed to keep going and growing throughout such challenging times. And with the restrictions on our liberties getting tighter by the week, I hope you'll agree that Spiked's case for freedom has become more essential than ever. So, As I said, thank you to those who donate already, but if you haven't donated recently to Spiked or are not a regular donor, I'd strongly encourage you to sign up today. We really have our work cut out for us in challenging the latest lockdown measures. If we don't fight back against them, they could now last for six months or more. So, if you think Spiked is doing a good job at making the case for freedom and you want to help us push things further, then become a regular donor today. It's really easy to do, and even just £5 per month can make the world of difference. All you need to do is go to spiked-online.com and hit the red donate button in the top right corner. That's spiked-online.com and the red donate button in the top right corner. Now, onto the Spiked podcast. Hello and welcome to The Spiked Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers. Tom Slater is away this week, so joining us instead is Spiked editor Brendan O'Neill. Hello. And as ever, we have Spiked columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, the return of lockdown, Labour's Brexit backpedalling, and the rise of the right-wing snowflake. We face a tipping point as a country. If that continued, you would end up with something like 50,000 cases
1: in the middle of October per day. If we palpably make progress, we should assume that the restrictions I've announced will remain in place for perhaps six months. Science will in due course ride to our rescue. Whatever measure the government takes, we will support it.
0: Six months since he first announced the lockdown, the Prime Minister Boris Johnson this week unveiled another sweeping set of restrictions on our lives and liberties. Pubs and restaurants will be subjected to a 10pm curfew. Fines for failing to wear a mask will double. The rule of six has been extended to indoor sports. Wedding guest lists will be capped at 15 people. Office workers are supposed to work from home once more. And all of this adds on top of the existing rule of six, while Scotland and Northern Ireland have gone even further by banning households from mixing. Worse still, the government expects these restrictions to last for another six months.
1: Brendan, um, what are your thoughts on what's been quite a crazy week? Well, crazy is the word. I think it's a really bad sign. It really demonstrates that this government has no solution or ideas in relation to COVID-19 other than more and more restrictions. And the way in which it is continually stopping and then starting and then stopping society, I think is really, really fundamentally destructive. I think it's destructive of community life social life individual life. It really hampers people's ability to think for themselves, to plan their lives, to know whether they're going to have a job in a few months, to know whether it's worth going to university, to know whether they can get married, whether they can visit their grandmother before she dies. I mean, all these central questions to human existence and to our livelihoods are just completely thrown up in the air by this attitude that the government has taken. It's just incredibly illiberal, authoritarian, and has this kind of poisonous impact across society. I think what's really striking is the way in which there is now a disconnect between the measures that the government is pushing and the reality of Mm COVID-19. I mean, there is a lot of discussion and disagreement over the idea that it is going to double every seven days or that we are going to be worse off than France or Spain, which seemed to be what the government's medical and scientific advisors were working from. I mean, there's loads and loads of disputing of those claims. It looks to most of us like COVID-19 is now something that society can live with or should certainly learn to live with, something that we should accept as part of the family of human diseases rather than continually trying to hide away from it. So there is a disconnect between the reality of COVID, which is that it is making far less of an impact than it did six months ago, and how the government is behaving. And I think what that really demonstrates is that the government is kind of on autopilot. It is responding in a way that conforms to all the pre-existing prejudices that were around long before COVID-19. The idea that you're better safe than sorry, the politics of fear risk aversion, and just complete and utter official distrust in ordinary people and our ability to take precautions where necessary and to live freely the rest of the time. So it strikes me increasingly that the response to COVID-19 is being driven by politics rather than by science. And it's been driven by a form of politics that is incredibly elitist and illiberal and. Completely full of fear. The question on my mind now is, how can we break out of this and move towards a society that is more reasonable and more liberal and more open?
0: Yeah, and I think one of the most striking events of this week was that presentation from Chris Whitty and, and Patrick Vallance, the, the chief medical officer and chief scientific officer. And, and I can honestly say it's it's really hard to think of a more dishonest use of scientific authority and a kind of more misleading portrayal of, of statistics. By officials who are supposed to be politically neutral, who are supposed to be driven by the science. I mean, you've you've mentioned the fact that it's heavily disputed what they've put out. But what was incredible is that you saw this graph where cases were said to be doubling and doubling every seven days. Now, Valence stressed that this was not a prediction. But he knew that that's what was going to get picked up by the news. He knew that that was the kind of headline figure from the discussion. And obviously, that's what the press ran with. I mean, the BBC, to their credit, actually reported that insiders say that they use this graph explicitly to influence behaviour, which is a polite way of saying to try and scare us shitless. But it's incredible to see any kind of professional adult, let alone the chief scientific and medical officers, put their name to something so demonstrably nonsensical to say that this is the science when really what they're doing is essentially propaganda. You know, they're trying to influence our behaviour. They were quite clearly trying to lay the groundwork for the restrictions that the Prime Minister was to introduce the next day. And I think this is incredibly shocking. Ella?
2: As a lay person, as everyone likes calling themselves these days, it's genuinely very hard to figure out how worried you should be, how blasé you should be. And part of the problem then is you really are just forcibly beholden to the varying and unpredictable pronouncements from a government that clearly isn't in control of its own plans, or even if it has plans. And it's very disempowering for people. Part of the problem is not just that people feel isolated socially or have very real issues like they can't make rent because you know the, this new furlough scheme that's coming on that 77% you know people need that last percentage a lot of them to get on in their lives and want to go back to work but on a kind of more political level feeling completely out of control of your life to the point at which there is no point making any plans in the next 6 months because you are at the whim not of a government making decisions about what's best to keep us safe, but on the political whim of Boris Johnson, Matt Hancock, and maybe a few others, is really bad news for democracy. The thing that I've been thinking about is how do you fight back against this? Because I think some of the things that make this picture a bit difficult is that as much as you can trust polls, they sort of constantly show that lots of people are in favour of some manner of... Not lockdown, but restriction that obviously a lot of people are very understandably frightened that actually, in a more positive way, lots of people you know want this to be over and so are weighing up things and saying, "Sure, okay, you tell me i 've got to stay at home if that means that I can see my family by christmas fine i 'll do it but it 's how do you tap into the kind of sensible desire of people for this whole fiasco to be over and dig down into the right kind of not data, but the actual you know the situation that's really going on is this a big threat, is this not a big threat? And I think people are like using the scientists that they want to use and using their favourite commentator, but what kind of wrestling back that information and saying what's actually going on? And more importantly, Brenda made the point how are we going to live with this? because all along we've been told that this virus is not going to magically disappear by September or Christmas. So what level of risk are we willing to accept? what level of sort of openness in society do we want to get back to? No one's asking these questions anymore. We just have to kind of swallow whatever crap they come up with in a press conference. And that is incredibly disempowering.
0: Brendan, I wanted to ask you, you know, how do we fight back against this? What, what does the kind of opposition look like?
1: Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really important question and a difficult one to answer for the reasons that Ella outlined, which is, you know, there's a large amount of public support for these measures. Now, I think that has to be taken with a pinch of salt. That's my view, for the most important reason, because the public has effectively been decommissioned. There is no public in the UK at the moment. There are no spaces in which people can have political gatherings or rallies. Many people are still working from home, which means you don't have those kind of water cooler discussions or post-work drinks in which people share their views and develop their views. Many of the outlets for the constitution of public life have just been... ripped apart. So I think that's one important thing. One thing that really winds me up is the way in which you know, the remain leaning sections of the political class are suddenly very, very interested in public opinion. Now that the public has effectively been broken down and atomised and sent off into their own little bubbles, they weren't interested in public opinion when it was freely expressed, freely constituted, and very clearly stated in terms of the vote for Brexit. So I think a bit of scepticism is necessary in relation to the public opinion thing. However, it does seem to be the case that at least publicly people are saying that they support these measures. And that is a problem. That's a problem because it means that people like us haven't won the argument. And in terms of how to push back against it, one thing I would say, I think it's really important that we don't become like Extinction Rebellion, having these kind of stunts, you know, anti lockdown stunts, and not even caring about the fact that the majority of the people are not really coming along with you for the political ride. I think that would be the worst thing to do. And I, I understand people's desire to want to do things like that because we live in an incredibly frustrating, stifling period. I think the key approach that we have to take is just to argue for the reconstitution of a public sphere, to argue for more parliamentary scrutiny, more democracy in parliament. I know there's going to be a bit of a rebellion over parliamentary scrutiny next week, and to make the case for reason and freedom as as clearly as we can really as ella says really dig down into the data get all those facts demonstrate that covid-19 is not as dangerous now as it was 6 months ago and constantly reiterate the argument for freedom and people being in control of their lives i think that's really the only way to do it and and to do that in as many public spheres as are currently open And to do it in as democratic a way as possible so that we avoid lashing out, I think. I think lashing out against the lockdown would probably be the worst thing. The way I see things going, I think on an individual level, people will start breaking the rules because people can't live like this. Mm. People in Scotland are going to visit other people's households people in England are going to drink later than 10pm and have gatherings of more than six people. Of course they are. And I don't have a problem with any of that whatsoever. I think it's very positive. But alongside those individual acts of rebellion against these new rules, we also need a much more public democratic push for the recovery of public life and the recovery of people's liberties. I think that's the only way to do it.
0: A lot of people use incognito mode for a variety of private reasons. Most people think that whatever you get up to is kept secret. But while the sites you visit might not get saved to your history, your internet service provider can still see every site you've ever visited. Even if you use incognito mode, even if you clear your history, and whether your provider is BT, Sky or whoever. In the UK... Your provider is required by law to store all of your metadata from the last year. But don't despair. There is a way to keep your data private. ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes and encrypts your internet connection through their secure servers so your internet provider can't see the sites you visit. Since I found out what data my ISP was keeping on me, I've started using ExpressVPN whenever I'm on my laptop for all my internet browsing. It's just safer that way. ExpressVPN will protect 100% of my data with its best in class encryption. That's why it's the number one rated VPN by CNET and Wired. It runs seamlessly in the background, there's no lagging or buffering. It's easy to use. Tap one button and you're protected. And it's available on all your devices phones, computers, routers. Your whole family can be protected under just one subscription. So now's the time to go to expressvpn.com slash spiked and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash spiked expressvpn.com slash spiked. The Labour leader Keir Starmer delivered his virtual conference this week, standing literally in front of a red wall in Doncaster. He pledged to offer, in the words of his new slogan, a new leadership. Much of Starmer's speech was an attempt to appeal to Labour's traditional working class voters, which it lost in the 2019 general election. Starmer said that when a party loses an election in a democracy, it deserves to lose. He declared that the Brexit debate and the argument between Leave and Remain were over. He also injected some notes of patriotism, which caused controversy among some Labour rank-and-file members.
1: Brendan, were you convinced by Starmer's pitch? No, not at all. <laughs> I have to say, I hope this doesn't sound too bitchy or anything, but I'm really struck by how how bad a political leader he is. He He's so drab, there's no spark, there's no energy, he seems you know very cardboard he seems to be reading things out all the time and he he strikes me as incredibly unconvincing and he's particularly unconvincing at playing this role of the man who can reconnect the working classes with the labor party i mean you couldn't ask for a worse labor politician to try and achieve that goal i do think it's something the labor party has to think about the fact that it's lost the people it was founded to represent but Keir Starmer is not the man either to think about that or to make it happen. The thing that actually made me really angry about his speech was his comment about the debate between leave and remain being over. Mm. I just think it's really worth dwelling on that for a few minutes. The fact that someone like him could say that it's because of people like him that it wasn't over on the 24th of June 2016, which is when it should have been over. It should have been over the minute we knew that Leave had won and and Remain had lost. That's when it should have been over. That's how democracy works. A decision is made and then that decision is sovereign and is acted upon. It's because of people like him. He was the author of Labour's disastrous second referendum Brexit policy. It's because of people like him that that didn't happen. It was dragged out. Members of his class tried to thwart the vote, tried to stop it, tried to block it, tried to kick it into the long grass. And it's really worth just reflecting on on what it meant to call for a second referendum, because we've let that slide into history a little bit. You know, lots of Labour types, including radical Labour types, are now trying to distance themselves from the fact that they all supported a second referendum. Because I think at some level, they recognise what a horrendous, abominable idea that was. You know, a second referendum would have entailed voiding the largest democratic vote in the history of this country. It would have been one of the worst attacks on democracy of modern times. I think they've slowly but surely come to realise that at some level, and maybe are a bit shamed-faced about it, <laughs> and want to consign it to the dustbin of history. But I don't think we should let them do that. And in the person of Keir Starmer, what we have is an incredibly metropolitan, well-connected member of the political elite. And one of the architects of the disastrous war on democracy, now trying to pose as the man who can rebuild the Red Wall and give the working classes more democratic power. Completely unconvincing. It's not going to happen. And voters aren't stupid. They're going to see straight through it.
0: Ella, your thoughts.
2: Well, also not to sound bitchy, but I, I actually think it, it's not crass to say or sort of superficial to say that Starmer is a uniquely unlikable person particularly for me because he embodies the desire at the heart of the Labour Party, which has been there for a very long time, this kind of petty bourgeois sensibility to just sort of get all the nastiness away, all of that Brexit stuff. We don't want to deal with it anymore. The debate's over, you know. None of that. We've got daddy Starmer, lawyer, sensible, good on the books to just come and sort everything out. And it really, he very much embodies... That strand within the Labour Party that's always been there, which is not really wanting to get involved with the, you know, the cut and thrust of public life, the sometimes messy, landscape of dealing with voters. (laughs) And you know, it's woodenness, yes, but it's also that kind of real and lasting disdain that is going to mean that they never move forward from this. And I'm glad of that because I'm, you know, none of us on this call or not many people probably who read spiked are fans of the Labour Party for that very reason that they've always put themselves at a kind of distance from the working man and woman. But in particular, you know, the whole discussion about patriotism as well as the Brexit bit, really pissed me off because I think there's nothing good about having self loathing for a country that you live in. And Labour's ridicule of patriotic people in the past has been vile. You know, many people were reminded of the Emily Thornbury flag incident. But in his sort of nod to the kind of patriotic sentiment, the problem is it's so fake. And the, the problem is that you can see that it's not just spin, but it's this kind of sentiment that lots of Labour people have, Labour lefties and Blair writes, that all you've got to do is just, you know, eat a bag of fish and chips and wink and a nod to the kind of working to man or whatever stereotype you're working with and boom, the voters will come back to you. It's just a little flicker that reminded me what an insulting view Labour has always had of ordinary voters that you can see through Brexit and through all their dealings with voters in the last few years. The remarkable thing is I think the Labour Party has convinced itself that if it tries to form a kind of unified block against Corbyn, you know, so if everyone just rows in behind Starmer and puts those bad old days behind them, that everything will be rosy. But in the, the party's response and Starmer's response to the coronavirus epidemic, you can just see that they've never been so irrelevant. I mean, he has nothing interesting to say about what the government's doing. You, I'm sort of crying out for an opposition for all the reasons we've talked about on this podcast for how badly the government is handling this. And the best he can do is say, well, I'm completely behind the government, but oh, you're not doing enough testing in this really kind of like petty kind of a way. So is the question we've asked ourselves many times on Spike. Is the Labour Party going to crumble or is it going to manage to still hold on? It's very hard to see how they can and Starmer can garner any kind of support, like even this kind of support that Corbyn had, because he's so empty and soulless. But more importantly, the Labour Party has come to the kind of zenith of its soullessness in the fact that it just can't get on board with what is contemporary politics these days, which is a focus on democracy and interest in the public and discussions about what a new future would hold have to involve those issues.
0: I just want to pick up on what you're saying about patriotism and things like that. It does feel just very heavily focused group. You know, some advisors obviously said to them, Oh, you know what people like? They like patriotism. Oh, do you know what they also like? They like families. So let's talk a bit about families, but it doesn't really have any content or or meaning behind it. You might as well say Oh, people like their pets. Why don't you, why don't you give a speech about pets and being nice to pets or something? It's, it's literally that kind of vapid.
2: It's almost like if they'd told him to wear a football shirt in the speech, he would have done it. It's like, it was that crass. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And in terms of the opposition, I think Keir Starmer summed it up best himself when on Andrew Marr, he said, this is before the government had announced any restrictions. He said, whatever measures the government takes, we will support them. And you're thinking you you haven't even heard what they might be. You know the government might have introduced a full-on lockdown. You know martial law on the streets, but but thankfully, Keir Starmer is is going to be there to back them up, whatever <laughs> whatever measures they take. And that really is quite a frightening position for us to be in, where you know we have both a useless government and an equally useless opposition, not really offering any kind of leadership at such a crucial time. Brendan, I agree. I
1: think w- what really struck me about the the patriotism and the community and the family stuff is exactly that it just came off as so hollow and practiced and spun, you know, just slogans, essentially. And again, once again, coming from someone like Keir Starmer, just completely unconvincing. I mean, this is a man who was central to the political class's mission over the past four years, which essentially said, Britain is a rubbish country. We can't do it alone. We have to be tied to the European Union or else we're finished. British exceptionalism is a myth and all these things. Just their argument against enacting the largest democratic vote in history really hinged on the idea that Britain isn't really up to much. I think that's one thing that people did definitely bristle against. You know, I I think there are so many people out there who really bristle against the kind of Britain bashing that has become fashionable both on the radical left, who are obsessed with colonialism and slavery in a really strange, regressive way, and on the kind of supposedly centrist left, who have spent a long time saying Britain is not capable of being an independent country and therefore we have to tie ourselves to Brussels for the rest of time. Those two different strands of anti British sentiment, I think that definitely switched off loads and loads of people who feel an attachment to the country and an attachment to their communities. The problem with someone like Keir Starmer, he cannot convincingly embody those values for so many different reasons. And the Labour Party doesn't understand them. If you say that many British people feel patriotic, they think you mean that British people have got the St George's flag in their window and sing Land of Hope and Glory every evening. They start to develop this caricature and they either come to hate that caricature or they try to appeal to it with the stupid sloganeering. The truth is much more complex and much more profound. I think many people, especially Labour voters, are sick of the kind of destructive impact of neoliberalism, sick of the hyper-individuation of things like woke politics and political correctness, sick of the kind of the rule of the technocrats. And they want a politics that is much more based on, in terms of the nation, national democracy. They don't want their families taken for a ride or mocked or their cultural values, you know, sent up constantly on comedy shows and BBC shows and podcasts about Karens and white men and all that kind of nonsense. So they feel a a sense of attachment to the nation and to community and to family because, They want more democratic clout. They want more democratic say. And they recognise that those are the institutions through which people can achieve that. So uh, Labour doesn't understand that. It never will understand that.
0: You're listening to the Spiked podcast. It's Fraser here with another quick reminder, if you haven't already, to consider giving Spiked a donation. All of our content is free and we want to keep it free so we can spread our pro-liberty, pro-democracy message as wide as possible. But we can only do that with your support. If you'd like to make a donation, it's easy. Just go to spiked-online.com and click the red donate button in the top right corner. That's spiked-online.com and the red donate button in the top right corner. Now, back to the show. Last week, broadcast regulator Ofcom said it had received 25,000 complaints about a performance by dance troupe Diversity on Britain's Got Talent. The routine was inspired by the Black Lives Matter movement, and at one moment, a dancer kneels on another's neck to evoke the killing of George Floyd. This week, Ofcom said it had received nearly 2,000 complaints about Alicia Dixon's Black Lives Matter-inspired necklace, again on Britain's Got Talent. Complaints also flooded in for Frankie Boyle's BBC2 comedy show, New World Order, after a comedian joked about killing Whitey. And across the pond, politicians have been getting angry about the French film Cuties, which is streamed on Netflix. The film is about the pressures put on young girls in a society which sexualizes them. But Republican Senator Ted Cruz called on the Department of Justice to investigate the film as child pornography. So, Ella... Are we witnessing the rise of what we might call the right-wing snowflake?
2: (laughs) Well, I think the only thing I'd call into question there is the rise, because this has been going on for quite a while. The sort of to and fro of so-called snowflakes on both sides of the right and left has been happening since the kind of fury of Donald Trump and his first election, but also before then. You've had this kind of spat where identity politics has inspired some people in society to descend into kind of tit-for-tat bickering about who can get who cancelled, who can cause the most outrage. The most painful thing about it is how much each side enjoys it. For example, the diversity performance on Britain's Got Talent was obviously designed to spark a reaction among the people who watched it, good or bad. And then the people who try to get it cancelled by complaining spark another reaction in the form of Alicia Dixon wearing the necklace and so on and on and on and on. And it's this kind of very petty cycle of the people who complain enjoy the process as much as the people who get complained about. And it's a very superficial way of dealing with actually quite serious issues in politics. So the question, for example, of racism and how to deal with it and the murder of George Floyd, is rather depressing to see that descend into a debate about whether or not someone is allowed to wear a bejeweled necklace, BLM necklace on a popular British television show. The thing that I think we always have to remind people is that despite the fact that you might shout at the telly at a various number of things, that freedom of speech applies as much to the most heinous right wingers as it does the most pathetic uh, liberal lefties. And you can't pick and choose what you think should be allowed on the television. It's also worth reminding people that politics, as much as we might wish that, you know, eight o'clock primetime television was about entertainment if you're not watching the news rather than being given lectures. And, you know, it is a fair point to make that a lot of today's entertainment industry is focused around the idea of being as right on as possible and ticking boxes in terms of not just diversity, but, you know, what is deemed to be politically acceptable by a small number of elites in producers' roles and that kind of thing. But, you know, for most people, we understand that politics has often played a role in the entertainment industry, that stars and actresses and musicians have made all kinds of political interventions crass and profound. So this is nothing new, but I think what is new is that it's given a sense of importance that it doesn't deserve. So, you know, that diversity performance did not deserve to blow up as much as it did. Cuties, for example, is a, by all intents and purposes, as I've read reviews from different numbers of people, quite an interesting film, did not deserve the kind of ridiculous infamy that it got for being, you know, described as sort of paedophilic people just need to calm down and be sensible and remember that freedom of speech comes with, for us anyway, it's spiked no ifs and no buts.
0: Yeah, I I agree completely. I mean, I can understand why people might be annoyed by the saturation of particularly Black Lives Matter, where, you know, it's still a major part of all football programming and all, all of that. And, you know, now obviously it seems to be a weekly feature on Britain's Got Talent, one of the most popular shows on TV. But I I don't understand how people can, with a straight face, say that it's offensive. That's certainly not what it is. I mean, some of the complaints are really worth reading and they're very strange. You know, people saying that this dance routine was racist towards white people or that it encouraged violence against the police. And I think, you know, what we are seeing is, is quite a strange and annoying tit for tat where people are really, you know, reaching. People are describing things that they're not really seeing in order to, Basically, justify their cancellation, and we see that all the time. Of course, in in relation to identitarians trying to cancel people, and now we're seeing a similar phenomenon on the right. But really, you know, as as you said, Ella, you know, what's most important is that we hold the line on free speech, and we let people say things, no matter how absurd or obscene or politically objectionable they may be, and from whatever side they come.
1: Brendan, I think that's right, and I think people have every right to question this kind of relentless mainstreaming of black lives matter i mean it's extraordinary it's moved across the world like this kind of imperial juggernaut destroying everything in its wake i mean it's it's everywhere it's it's, it's almost the law now do you have to bow down to Black Lives Matter, whether you're a football game or you're a politician or you're a, a mainstream prime time entertainment program like Britain's Got Talent. So that's definitely worth talking about and asking questions about. For me, it shows that just how ridiculous Black Lives Matter has become. The idea that this is some kind of radical movement for social justice and for upending the history of colonialism and empire and everything else. And yet it can be featured on the blandest entertainment show in Britain at the moment. Britain's Got Talent. And it can be featured around the neck of Alicia Dixon, who is just, you know, a fairly run-of-the-mill entertainment person. I mean, it it just doesn't stack up. So there is stuff there to be talked about. But this reaction from right-wingers is just so completely ridiculous and completely over the top. And if anything, at the moment anyway, they're behaving worse than left-wing so-called snowflakes because they are bombarding Ofcom with thousands and thousands of complaints to try and get people reprimanded essentially for having a dance featuring black lives matter. The QT's controversy was even more surreal where they were, you know, seriously referring to this quite interesting film, this coming of age film, they were referring to it as child pornography and it is absolutely nothing of the sort. So th- they've become really unhinged. I think what's quite interesting is in relation to the Black Lives Matter stuff and Britain's Got Talent, there was lots of pushback from, Lefties who are saying, oh, look at these gammon, the you know, gammon being a kind of politically correct word for pig, essentially. Look at these pigs phoning offcom and trying to get something banned. I mean, that's not gonna wash because those same lefties are at the forefront often of campaigns like this to get people sacked, to get JK Rowling's books burnt or boycotted. You know, they're often at the forefront of such shrill, censorious campaigns. So that won't wash. But for those of us who believe in freedom of speech, we have to say that freedom of speech means freedom of speech. And that means you should not overreact to anything you don't like. You certainly should not complain about it to authorities that have the right to slap people's wrists. You should not try to get it banned. You should not try to get it censored and you should not try to get people punished. Everyone has freedom of speech and everyone else can talk about what they've said, but they shouldn't try and punish them for having said it. There are many, many people on the right who don't understand that. And there are many, many people on the left who don't understand that. And I think one of Spike's role in relation to this is to constantly insist on the right of freedom of speech for absolutely everyone, right from crazy Maoists on the left through to far-right neo-fascists on the right and everyone in between. And until people realise that freedom of speech means freedom of speech for everyone, We're going to continue having these kinds of ridiculous controversies.
0: Thanks for listening to the Spike Podcast. We'll be back next week. If you enjoyed the show, why not check out some of Spike's other podcasts in the meantime? We have The Brendan O'Neill Show, in which Spike's editor talks all about the big ideas, bad ideas, problems, and controversies of life in the 21st century all with the help of an esteemed guest. Then there's Culture Wars, hosted by spiked columnist, stand-up comic and satirist Andrew Doyle. This monthly podcast is the perfect antidote to the woke idiocy taking over our lives. And last but not least, you should check out Last Orders, a podcast hosted by Tom Slater and Chris Snowden. Last Orders is all about freedom, the nanny state and censorship. And there's a lot about coronavirus these days too. You can listen to all these shows with your favourite podcast provider or you can find them on the Spiked website at spiked-online.com. Thanks for listening. See you next week.